We're going to be looking at Isaiah 44 this morning, so you can go ahead and turn there if you want. Uh, I think the best way to summarize what I was trying to get at last night is uh, to tell you a story, one of my favorite stories. It happened to my friend Scott Rowley. He's a pastor down in Nashville, Tennessee at a church where I worked at for eight years. Um, he had a guy in his church who'd been coming to church but wasn't a follower of Jesus and wanted to meet with Scott and talk with him a little bit. So they sat down together and uh, this guy basically the long and short of what he said is, I don't really, I don't really want to, you know, I, I'm really struggling with this thing. And Scott's like, what, what is it? He goes, I just, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. Like, you know, I, there's a lot of things I really love and really intrigue me about Christianity. But this whole evangelism thing, like, I, I, don't, I, I just don't, I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. My friend Scott said to him, you know, you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus for God to love you. <coughs> Telling people about Jesus is not the way you get God to love you. You don't need to do that. And then the meeting ended. A few weeks later, a mutual friend of theirs said, Scott, what did you tell that guy when you met? And Scott's like, what do you mean? He goes, ever since he met with you, like, he's just telling everybody about Jesus. <laughs> so Scott called him back into his office and said, like, what happened? And he said, you know, Scott, when you told me that I didn't have to tell anybody about Jesus for God to love me, I just had to tell everybody. In other words, when you see God for who He really is, it changes you. What I hope you understand is that God is not content with our misplaced trust. But He's not just up there wringing His hands, wondering, what can I do about it? No, He takes matters into His own hands. And He comes and He does battle with our idolatry. Because He loves us and because He won't share His glory with another. So take heart this morning. We're going to talk about tonight about the way the Bible and the sacraments and prayer are all various ways that He speaks truth and opens our eyes to see the beauty of truth in a way that really has power to shape us. You know, last night we sang a hymn, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. You remember this hymn? This is a hymn written by Henry Light. Henry Light, he also wrote a hymn we sing a lot in RUF, Jesus, I'm Our Cross Have Taken, which we'll, we'll sing that with the hymn sing. Um, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, written by Henry Light. Henry lived back in the 1800s. And somewhat unusual for his day and age, his parents split up. Henry's father remarried and sent Henry off to boarding school. He was probably middle school age kid when this happened. But once his father sent him off to boarding school and remarried, from then on, whenever he would write letters to his own son, he would not sign them, your father, but he would sign them, your kind uncle. In other words, he never let his son call him father again. What a wretched father. Yet I'm sure there's people here who suffered worse at the hands of their fathers. But what's fascinating about Henry Light and this story, and the reason I tell you this story, is the way it's so fascinating to see how in every one of his hymns, 
the Father image is still a warm, comforting one. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven has a line, um, is it, um, well our feeble frame he knows, in his hand, he gen- oh, I gotta, I gotta read it. Wait, I'm trying to find. I was like, can I do this? Two things at once. I have the words because I want to read it. Oh, here it is. I'm gonna read it for you the right way. Yeah, father-like, he tends and spares us. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. In his hands, he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. How do you explain a guy? whose father was so wretched that he wouldn't let his own son call him father, writing lines like this. And it's in every one of his hymns that I know of. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken has this line, Think what father's smiles are thine. What it shows us is the Scriptures. God, working through His Word, through His sacraments, has power to deconstruct and reconstruct the Father image for Henry Light and for you. Don't despair of your idols because God has real power and He's committed to changing you. Isn't that good news? Let's look at Isaiah 44 as we continue to to get this truth into our hearts because we need it. It's a wonderful passage about idolatry. Wonderful passage about idolatry. Chapter 44, verse 1. This is God's Word. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You see this, again, this connection with fear and God coming and speaking promises into their fear. They will spring up, your offspring, like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand, the Lord's and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come? Yes, let him foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No. There is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing. And the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame 
Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line. He makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the field, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It's man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays His glory in Israel. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for the goodness of Your grace and Your mercy. And the goodness of Your Word that You would reveal to us so clearly and graphically the emptiness of our idolatry, but even more so, the firm commitment of Your love. Lord, may we not only understand this portion of Your Word, but may it cause us to burst into song because of Your glory and Your beauty and Your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Main issue I really want to talk about this weekend is the relationship between worship, idols, and renewal, or transformation, or sanctification, or however you want to put it. The point I want you to get is that worship shapes and molds us. We actually think quite a lot about the kinds of songs we're going to sing in RUF because, you see, RUF has ordained pastors who are called to go be in the world of the college campus 
pastoring, shepherding students. And therefore, we want, and we do, I hope, think as pastors about the kinds of songs that will be helpful for you. A friend of mine who directs the Calvin Institute of Worship up at Calvin College in Michigan wrote a, a fascinating article a few years back on how regular weekly worship prepares us for our encounter with death. I don't know what you think about when you think about what you like in worship music or what kind of songs you should sing. But what John Whitley says is you should be thinking about what songs will prepare your students for their encounter with death. Whoa. That puts a whole different spin on it, doesn't it? Do you, do you know how many of the churches around here? I love coming up to New England because you see the old way that they used to make churches. And one of the things I want you to notice is how often they built the cemetery in such a way that you have to go right through the middle of it to get to the front door of the church. Why? Because they want you to know that you're dealing with matters of life and death when you walk through those doors. And what happens inside those doors is all about life and death. We forget that and we sort of keep that at arm's length, especially when we're young. We think that death is so far away. But I know there's probably not a person in this room that hasn't been touched by the great enemy of death. And worship has everything to do with that. Worship shapes and molds us. There was a pastor, Scottish pastor, who lived back in the 1800s named Thomas Chalmers. And Chalmers preached a sermon one time called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Now my spell checker doesn't like that word expulsive, but I'm not ready to give it up because it's a great word. It's about how you can never really get over your idolatry until a new, more beautiful, and more powerful love drives out your other loves. He said this happens in, in, in all of life, and particularly in the spiritual realm. The way I try to explain it to my students is to talk about the phenomena of being on the rebound. Have you ever had a crush on somebody? Or maybe you've been dating somebody and really fell in love with them and they break your heart. And you may think you're over them, but everybody around knows that you're not really over them. And you're looking for that next relationship that's sort of going to drive out the memory of the relationship that you were just in. You need one love to drive out another love. You can't just quit worshiping. John Calvin said at one time that our hearts are like idle factories. That we were made to worship and you can't quit worshiping. All you can really do is have your worship transferred. But you can never stop worshiping. You never really get over one love until a new love comes along. And that's what this passage is all about. Like I said last night, we are in a worship war. And I'm not talking about whether we sing old hymns or new choruses or, or anything about that. Though I do think there are implications for what we sing. What I'm really talking about is that we are made to worship. And we will find something beautiful and compelling and worth living for. And if it's not true, the true God, it will be an idol of some sort. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God. You can hear that word? Exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. It's either or. There's no third option. There's no possibility of saying, I'm just going to quit worshipping. 
Because to do that is in essence to worship yourself. To say, I won't serve anything. That's the way I'll stay safe. No, that's the way that you worship yourself. And you worship your control. And it won't ever really work. Listen, I want you to understand that worship is really involved in everything you do. I think one of the great tragedies is so many people sort of live this dual existence. And college really can do this to you if it hasn't happened to you yet. It, it really can if you're not thinking about it and processing everything Christianly. What happens so often is we think of our Christian life as being about RUF and church and Bible studies and maybe even how I live morally. But do you understand that everything you're involved in is worship? Everything, see here's what you need to understand. Everything involved in culture is connected to worship. Why? Because God spoke everything into existence and he stamped it with meaning. And when we refuse to worship the true God, we actually are trying to change the meaning that God has stamped into everything that he's made. For instance, your sexuality is stamped with meaning that's unavoidable. God created your sexuality not for you, you to say, here's why I matter. Not for you to say, here's where I find um, enjoyment. No, your sexuality was made for you to express commitment. And there are so many forces in our culture that want to make it say something else. Some that want to say, well, it's just a biological function. Just like when you get hungry, you eat. When you feel sexy, you sex. And there's nothing more, more deep to it than that. But the true meaning that God has stamped into it keeps breaking through. And when you sleep with somebody, you feel married, like it or not. Some people want to say it's life is all about. It's what life is all about. It's the only place where you actually get in touch with transcendence. But God says, no, it's a gift. And if you either worship it or if you despise it, the true meaning is going to break through. In so many ways, God has, has made this world and stamped it with meaning. Work. What about work? How does this function with work? God said that you were made to work to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But we try to make work say, here's why I matter. Here's why people should value me. Here's, why, um, here's how I can provide a future for myself. Become financially secure. And if you try to make work mean that, well, it will keep you forever in bondage and fear and insecurity. God has made everything and stamped it with meaning. And when you are involved in every aspect of life, you're either worshiping and submitting to what God has said this thing means, you're either rejoicing in that and thanking Him for it, or you're trying to rewrite what He said. And that's idolatry. And that's worship. Worship is everything. There's a, a professor, a philosophy professor at Calvin College, James K. Smith, who's written a book recently worth reading called Desiring the Kingdom, where he points out how all of life are secular liturgies that are molding and shaping our hearts. And he has this great example of a shopping mall. 
and, and sort of reconceiving the shopping mall as a modern day cathedral where we go and we, you know, we sort of drive up to the parking lot and we see all the streams of worshipers making their way towards this cathedral. And when you first walk in, you're not really sure where to go or what to do, but there are nice, you know, clear guides, you know, on these big boards that will direct you to the various places. And there's all, as you're walking through the halls, there's all these various little chapels where you can sort of go off to the side and worship. You know, in most cathedrals, a lot of the worship took place in the little side sort of little chapels, not in the big main room. And that's what it's like. And you go in and as soon as you walk in, there are you know, these well-trained worship assistants who will help you. And they know just when you need assistance or when they need to sort of back off and let you sort of examine the things. And then you find something that you think is going to bring you what you want, that's going to give you hope and a future, that's going to make you more beautiful, that's going to make you more desirable, that's going to bring more sense of worth and security into your life. And then you go up to the very altar itself and you hand over your money and the worship is consummated. And the great thing about worship at a shopping mall is you actually take something with you. You have this artifact that says to you every time you wear it, I'm beautiful. Everything we're involved in is worship. You're doing things for a reason. And it's not just because of what you think. It's because of what you worship. And when you begin to realize how ubiquitous worship is, is when you really begin to realize why you need God and why you need to read the Bible every day. Because how can you begin to do battle against that? Against all the liturgies that are molding and shaping your hearts unless you hear a sure, true word from God all the time. It's why the Bible says, don't give up in the habit of meeting together. You need the Word. You need each other. You need prayer. You need times where you can have your sanity restored. Because that's what worship in the Christian church is about. It's about having your sanity restored. It's about coming in here believing that God loves me more when I do the right things. And you need that insane idea to be confronted and exposed as a lie. And you need to see that Jesus is the truly beautiful one who gives you his beauty not because you deserve it but because he loves you and he wants to. We need to be shaped and molded. Worship is about restoring our sanity. Rodney Clapp, an author I really love, says this at one point, Christian worship is practice in seeing through common sense. See there are common sense ideas that are in your head and in your heart. And they're even more powerful because they're common sense. They're not things that you've even had to think through or prove to yourself. They just are. But worship is practice in seeing through common sense. And he's writing about the book of Revelation at this point. And he says, to the world of John's day, John the Apostle, common sense was that Rome was invulnerable. That Rome's Lord was the Lord of the earth. But the church, in its liturgy, recalled itself to a different and true Lord. In worship, we have our eyes open to see more. I think so many Christians believe that living by faith means closing your eyes to reality. But actually, living by faith means opening your eyes to see more, not less. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is living your life based upon more than you can just see, taste, and touch. It means seeing through common sense, seeing that God is true and that there is a throne in heaven and it's occupied. See, our basic problem as believers is that of idolatry. 
We often worship a quote-unquote God that's so much less than the true God. But the Bible heals us of our idolatry because God is committed to our good and to His glory. And here's the way He does it. He shows us that what we're trying to get through our idols, we already have in Jesus. And when we see this and the truth of it connects to our hearts, we are transformed. And this is what Isaiah 44 is about. Isaiah 44 is about the two-pronged attack. Two-pronged attack that God takes to deal with our idolatry. God is not up in heaven wringing His hands, wondering what He's going to do about our false worship. He is on the attack. And there's two parts to His attack. He begins the fight by revealing who He is. Look at this passage. Go back to verse 6. This is what the Lord says. And it's not just the Lord says. Like He wants to make sure you understand, hey, remember, the Lord. You know, Israel's King and Redeemer the Lord, and whenever you see Lord all capitalized like it is there, that's the English translation's way of telling you that the Hebrew here at this point is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and the last. Apart from me there is no God. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, look, Jacob, my servant. It's fascinating. Whenever God calls Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Jacob had his name changed after he wrestled with God. Why does God keep calling His people Jacob and then turning around and calling them Israel, like in verse 1? It's because He wants us to remember where we've come from and what He's done to change us. You're Jacob and you're Israel. But He starts by saying, look, here's who I am. He comes to them in their fear and He doesn't say, hey, stop it. No, the first thing He says is, this is what the Lord says, the Lord, the covenant Lord, Yahweh, the one who has revealed His name to you. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. See, all the things that they've forgotten that make it so reasonable to them to put their trust in something else, He reminds them right off, do you remember who I am? Do you remember who's talking to you? And sometimes we have to do that with our idols. We have to say, whoa, wait a second. Heart, do you remember who God is? Do you remember who... Wait, you're going to put your hope in this? Do you remember Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, your King and Redeemer? He says, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. I don't care what you believe. There is no God. If God says there is no other rock, I know not one, then there isn't one. You may think there are other gods. You may think there are other ways to get to this God. But God says, I don't care what you believe. There isn't one. Get in touch with reality. God says, who then is like me? He trash talks them in their false worship. He says, who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him lay out and declare what has happened since I established my ancient people. Oh, and by the way, which other God has even established a people? Yeah, let, let, let these idols tell you what's going to come in the future. I don't know if you've been in any sort of religion classes where they've explained to you how Isaiah really wasn't written by Isaiah. It was written by different Isaiahs. And you have the first part of the book, then you have the second part of the book, Deutero-Isaiah. But listen to me. There are almost like 20, 25 chapters of short-term predictions with easily verifiable results that Isaiah makes in the first half of the book. And the second half of the book, a common theme is 
The true God is known because He can speak the future before it happens. And He doesn't just speak it in really vague kinds of ways like so many of our modern prophets. He speaks it very specifically. In a few years, this nation is going down. Mark my words. And those words are reported. In other words, if the book doesn't really hang together, it doesn't make any sense because you read things like this and you're like, well, when did he lay out before it was going to happen, what was going to happen? And the answer is in the first half of the book. God is the one who knows the future. Why? Because he holds the future in his hands. And so much of our idolatry is about trying to guarantee and control the future. In our fear, in our anxiety. Do you understand that your anxiety is not just because the future is scary. It's also because you're trying to think through every possibility so that you can gain control and mastery over the future. Are you one of those people who, like, before you call somebody on the phone, you have to plan out every single possible thing they could say and how you're going to respond to it? Are you somebody like that? We do that kind of crazy stuff. We, we, you know, we get panic attacks because we realize that we need to try and think through every possibility and what we're going to do. Like every aspect of life is like the most complicated chess game you've ever been involved in. And it, it just kills you. No wonder you wake up in the middle of the night screaming. Right? Because who can possibly foresee every possibility, let alone have the wisdom to know how to deal with it? But God says, you don't need to. I am the first and the last. I am the one who knows the future because I'm the one who holds the future in my hand. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. See, He doesn't just reveal His character for the heck of it or just to impress us. God is not cosmically insecure, needing your worship so He'll feel better about Himself. You need to worship Him because it's what you were made for. And God is a good God when He reveals Himself. And you see here, He reveals Himself as a way of saying to you, you don't need to be afraid. And then, He moves on to, to blow number two. Your idols are absurd. Your idols are absurd. Look at this. This is so, so beautiful. I don't know. I've... I've been around Christians sometimes who says, sarcasm really doesn't have a place in Christianity. We should never be sarcastic. Really? Have you read the Bible? You know, there's actually a place in Isaiah. Uh, I think the NIV translates it and says the idols are meaningless wind. But it's, it's really the Hebrew term for passing gas. <laughs> now, that's not sort of sarcasm. Do you know the place where Elijah on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal where they're worshiping their gods and they're like cutting themselves and they're dancing around and they're hooping and hollering. Do you understand that image? See, Baalism was this religion that basically was about trying to, trying to get Baal to impregnate the earth with his sperm, which was, the, which was the rain. And the best way that you can get that to happen is by getting him excited through your worship. And so worship involved a lot of pornographic stuff and a lot of frenzy and a lot of dancing and a lot of cutting yourselves, hoping that the blood flowing would stimulate other things and the rain would come, right? It's such a picture of false worship. And I'll tell you guys, it's the, it's the picture of a lot of what's called Christian worship and living too. We're trying to do all this stuff, cutting ourselves even, either metaphorically or literally, to get God to notice us. And I, you remember what Elijah says? He's like, hey, shout louder. 
Maybe, maybe God, you know, can't hear you. It, I think the NIV again, you know, sort of softens the sentence of the Hebrew. It says maybe he's on a trip, but it really says maybe he's on the toilet and your God can't come right now and help you. Right? The Bible is full of sarcasm. One of the best things you can do for your idol is to look at them and cast scorn on them and say, this is insane and ridiculous. I remember when I was in college, uh, like um, Joe, or, uh, Eddie said, I went to Berkeley College of Music. And I remember um, when I became a Christian, I basically became a Christian in ninth grade, and I sort of kind of, I, I was a Christian in college, but it wasn't really until my last year in college that I started coming alive in Christ in a lot of ways. And I remember uh, I was involved with Park Street Church. Some of you may know Park Street Church. I'm involved in the college ministry. Me and a couple of my friends actually started the Christian Fellowship at Berkeley. And we had one of the pastors from Park Street who would come do our Bible study. And then eventually he got transferred to a church up in Michigan. And so all the Berkeley guys looked at me. I was getting ready to graduate. And they said, hey, why don't you take over the Bible study? And I said, uh, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure out something to teach. And that means I'm going to have to figure out what I actually believe. And that means I guess I should go read a book. So I remember going to Kenmore Square. And there, at that point, there was a Logos bookstore there. I don't think it exists anymore. But I remember spending about three hours in that bookstore reading the back cover of every book in the place, trying to figure out a couple books that would help me. And I got a book by Jeff Packer called Knowing God. I got a book by Watchman Nee, which is pretty far removed. I didn't know anything. And then I would sort of go around. I, I ended up getting a, a job at Berkeley uh, supervising the recording studios. So my shift was like 6 at night till 4 in the morning. And I would just sit in that office and I would try and read books. And during the days I would go hunt out used bookstores. And I think I bought like 500 books that semester. I didn't read any books really until I got out of college. And all this while, I remember there was a radio show on, on an AM station around here. I don't know if it still exists, but there was a guy, Walter Martin, who's passed away now, but his show was called The Bible Answer Man. And people would just call in with questions about anything they had, and he would answer them. And I remember listening to that being like, I want to be that guy. I want to be the Bible Answer Man. I don't know what else I have to offer people in Christian community. I don't know any other reason why they'd want to like me. I'm not very good looking. I'm really socially awkward. I play guitar, but that's because I'm too shy to meet girls any other way. <laughs> so, and I can't dance, and I don't want to. And I married a dancer. <laughs> well, anyway. So, I remember listening to that guy saying, I know, I'll be the Bible answer man. So I'm going to buy a lot of books, and I'm going to read them, and I'm going to sort of mold my little identity and sort of find my niche. The only problem with that is, I went to seminary, and I met smarter people who'd read more books than me, who knew things I didn't know about. And then I started forgetting things. Oh, you know, I used to know that. And I found sometimes that the answers I gave people made them cry. <laughs> My wife will tell you about that. We actually used to have a, uh, a meeting in our RUF group where every week people would come ask me questions. I'd become the Bible answer man. The problem is sometimes, you know, these sweet students would ask these questions and I would be so harsh with them that I would just make them cry. And my wife would be like, Kevin, you can't say that, right? I was a terrible Bible answer man. But the more, the more I saw how bad I am at it, the more I redoubled my efforts to make sure I would know the answer to every question. What I'm telling you is, that's absurd. Because here's the thing, if I think the reason I matter to God and the reason I find a place in Christian community is because I know all the answers, oh my gosh, 
What do I do when I don't know the answers? What do I do when I go to seminary and I find out that Christian scholars disagree about some things? And I'm not sure what the right answer is. What do I do when I read John Calvin talking about the experience of taking the Lord's Supper and he says, I can't explain this. I just can tell you that at times I feel like I've been caught up into the third heaven. And we're like, okay, there's some things that I can't even explain to people. Even John Calvin couldn't explain them. I remember hearing one time that John Calvin's favorite verse in the Bible was Deuteronomy, I think it's 29.29 or 23.23, where it says, Now what has been revealed belongs to us, but what is secret belongs to the Lord. And I remember thinking, I didn't come to reform theology so that there could still be gaps in my knowledge. I came to reform theology so I could be the Bible answer man and make sure I had the right answers. And now I'm having to deal with actual people, and I don't know what to say. My first year in ministry, I had a girl who truly had split personalities. She would sometimes wake up in another state and not know how she got there. You would open her journal and you would see that she would write a different handwriting when she was in her other personality. She was in my office one time and the screensaver on my computer sent her into her other personality. They didn't teach me in seminary how to deal with that. The Bible answer man was left without an answer. And at that point, you either crumble or you repent. And it's so vital that the gospel come in at that point and say, Kevin, I didn't love you because you're the Bible answer man. Therefore, I'm going to love you when you're not a very good Bible answer man. And that actually gives me encouragement to stay in the midst of conversations when I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if you have this illusion that your campus ministers know what they're doing. Most of ministry is improvisation. And I went to Berkeley College of Music and learned how to improvise. I'm still not very good at it. The Christian life is a lot about improvisation, which means if you're depending on having it all figured out, you're in for a real rough ride. God exposes the absurdity of our idolatry. And then he goes on and he explains to us the way idolatry binds, B-I-N-D-S, and blinds us. I'll take those actually in the opposite order. Idolatry blinds us. I mean, the more you talk about idolatry in a context like this, you're like, why do I worship idols? That's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's astonishing how absurd idolatry is. And it's even more astonishing that we don't see it. And the only way to explain that is that there is something supernatural going on here. Our hearts are deceitful, Jeremiah says, and beyond understanding. One of the things I hope you don't go away from this retreat saying is, oh, I've got my idols figured out now. Like that's all you need. I think actually one of the idols among me and a lot of my friends is being good at talking about our idols, which is not the same thing as repenting and collapsing upon God's grace. Don't begin to worship insight into your idolatry and make that your new idol. And you're like, well, how do, I, how do I get set free? Because here's the thing. Idols not only lie to you, it's fascinating how often the Bible calls them lies. They're equated all over the place. Even here, sometimes he says the idol is a lie. Sometimes he just says you can't see that this right thing, thing in your right hand is a lie. It's a lie. But you can't see it. You can't see it. Why? 
Because worships create, uh, worshiping idols, idols create what Keller calls delusional fields. In other words, if you're worshiping popularity, then you quickly become prey to all kinds of lies, like, I need this person to like me. I can make this person like me if I do this. When I'm popular, I can finally rest. So those are all lies. And they're lies that don't make any sense. But they're believable lies because once you put your worship in popularity, all these other lies come into your heart and into your life. And I love the way uh, Isaiah pictures this in verse 20. If you're worshiping an idol, you're feeding on ashes. I'm with Eddie. I like the sausage here too. I know that I wouldn't have been very satisfied if breakfast today were ashes. Have you feasted on ashes lately? They don't stick with you. Let me tell you, not like that oatmeal. That sticks to your ribs. That's good stuff. Ashes, not so much. They don't work. Do you understand that when you put your hope in idols, you're feeding on ashes? They just make you more hungry. But look at what else he says. This is like the ultimate catch-22. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say in verse 19. No one can even stop and think how crazy this is. Why? Because a deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself. You can't get out of this misplaced worship by yourself. By your willpower. That would be just to turn your willpower into another idol. And I think so many people think that Christianity is about getting more and more disciplined so that you don't really need God. And for people that already everything in their life is about discipline and self-improving and self-actualizing, well, they just bring all that into Christianity and Christianity is sort of a means to an end. For so, for so many years, that's what my life was about. Using God as a means to an end. For me, it was about using God to get friends. When I became a Christian in ninth grade, I think that I had a vague sense that I needed God's love and I needed His forgiveness and that I was a sinner. But honestly, the main thing drawing me to Christ were Christians who actually were nice to me. And I was so desperately lonely that I felt if I become a Christian and join their group, maybe I'll actually have friends who are nice to me because none of my other friends are very nice to me. And you know what's fascinating is the longer I was a Christian... The more I tried to use Jesus to get friends, the less friends I had. And I didn't realize how the anger and the resentment was building in my heart. When I went to seminary, and I was, you know, I was probably in my 30, 31, about this time, um, near the end of my seminary career. I'm still single. I've never had a real date. I'm desperately lonely. I'm as lonely as I've ever been because I still sort of have friends back in Nashville. I kind of have friends at seminary, but I go back and forth to the two places, so I'm not really rooted anywhere. Not only that, I, I, I don't even know how to be a friend. And I remember taking the Myers-Briggs test in a, in a seminary class, and the professor would meet with us all individually to sort of process the results. He said, Kevin, I see that this test says that there's a lot of suppressed anger in you. It's like, I'm not angry. Oh yeah, I was angry before I became a Christian. Once I became a Christian, I'm, I'm not angry because Christians aren't angry. It's not part of the fruit of the Spirit, right? What I didn't realize is I was misunderstanding. So it doesn't say fruits of the Spirit in Galatians, like you get to pick which one you like. 
Jonathan Edwards makes this, this point in his book, Charity and Its Fruits. It says fruit, singular. That if you don't have joy and self-control, it's not really the fruit of the Spirit. It's your own willpower masquerading as the fruit of self-control. I'd killed my hope so that I could kill my heartbreak. And I thought that I was full of the fruit of self-control. In reality, I was terribly angry. I just was too afraid to face it. And anger that we suppress comes back as depression. Why? Because anger is energy to do something, to change something. And if it can't have any kind of outlet, you just become hopeless and despair. And that's what I was living in. And I remember a few years after seminary, going back up to St. Louis. And we were, uh, some, some friends of mine, pastors from the church I was at, were doing a sort of a conference at a church up there. And I remember the preacher getting up there, and I was playing guitar in the worship band. That's why I went along. And I remember the preacher getting up there and talking about anger. And as the sermon began, I remember thinking, oh, okay, that's, this would be great for the people to hear. And then I started to remember, because I was back in St. Louis, and it started to come back to me, oh, yeah, that guy Seth Dearness told me that I was an angry person. I don't know. The more the more the sermon went on, I began to realize two things simultaneously. One is, I'm really angry. And I'm really angry because God set me up. It's a place where Jeremiah says to God, I was seduced. You seduced me. Tremper Longman, Old Testament professor, says that the Hebrew word is really stronger. So you date raped me, God. You set me up. You opened up my heart and then you trounced it. And I began to feel that. I began to think, God, you've never given me what I wanted. I've served you. For years, ever since ninth grade, I didn't go to those parties. I didn't do that stuff that all my other friends were doing. I serve you. And what has it gotten me? What has it gotten me? I began to see I'm terribly angry. I'm terribly angry because I feel that God has not kept His end of the deal. But then I began to realize, this began to sort of come over me at the same time. Oh my gosh. I've been angry at God ever since I've become a Christian. And yet he's still pursuing me. And I don't think that if I hadn't at the same time that I was seeing my anger, I was seeing his love and his pursuit of me, even in showing me my anger, as painful as it was, I began to realize it's all part of God's goodness to me that he's not going to let me sit in this place of trying to use him as a means to an end. For so many people who follow Jesus... I think one of the chief idols in their life is using God in a pragmatic way as a means to an end. Whether it's a way to find meaning or significance or friends. We use God as a means to an end. But here's the good news. God doesn't blot us out of existence even though He has every right to. He comes after us. And it's a good thing because we can't let go of an idol. Even if we see it's an idol, we can't let go of it. Because to let go of it would be to, to come apart at the seams. It would be to basically erode every bit of foundation you have in your life. See, here's the thing. You can't just walk out of here and be like, oh, that was really interesting. I found out maybe I'm a people pleaser, and that's actually a lot worse than I thought. 
I thought it's just an inconvenience, but it actually is false worship, and it's actually creating all these delusional fields in my life. It's putting me in bondage. It's making me even more insecure. Wow, it's a big problem. I need to really figure out what I'm going to do about that. And you can walk out of here and be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. Sometimes I, I, I smile like when I'll talk to a student, like, you know, how's it going? They're like, well, you know, I'm, I, I've been struggling with, with lust, uh, but I'm working on it. And I always love to ask them, well, tell me exactly what you're doing to work on that. And they usually have no answer. What I'm working on it usually means is I'm feeling bad about it a lot. <laughs> I'm realizing that my life is full of lust and I feel bad about it. And I'm feeling bad about it all the time. So it's constantly with me. So I'm quote unquote working on it. Really? That's not working on it. Working on it is meditating on the scripture, having your Christian friends pray and encourage you that there is one who's beautiful, who made himself for you. It's, it's getting the gospel into your heart in a way that will drive out those false loves. And that's what God is doing. That's what God is doing. What's the great deliverance from the ultimate catch-22? Because the fact that you can't even see the thing in your right hand is a lie. You may be able to see a little bit of it, but you can't really even begin to go to the depths you need to go. The only way you can really take an honest look at your heart, the only way you can really begin to be authentic is if God is a safe place for you to repent and to come clean. As long as you think that God needs you to perform, you'll never really be able to become honest with Him. But God is a safe place. Look at what it says here. Remember these things, O Jacob, verse 21. You are my servant, O Israel. Do you hear the, just the, the compassion, the emotion in God's voice here? I have made you you didn't make me. I've made you. You are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. Where do you need to hear that this morning? God saying to you, the deepest part of your heart, I will not forget you. Verse 22, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Why? Because you came to me and asked for it? No, look at this. Return to me is the invitation of verse 22. For because I have redeemed you. Which comes first? God redeems us. He sent Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners. Romans 5 tells us that if you're in Christ, it's because God the Father and God the Son made an agreement before the foundation of the world to accept the life and death of the Son of God in your place. And at a particular point, God Almighty sent His Spirit to take away your heart of flesh, give you, take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, birth you again. Nicodemus was told by Jesus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus said, that's impossible. Jesus said, you're right, and you need it anyway. And then he said, the Spirit blows where it wills. The wind, but in Hebrew and Greek, the wind and the word Spirit are the same word. The wind blows where it will. The Spirit blows where it will. You can't see it, but you can see when it's been working. And did you guys run into that tree branch across the road coming up here? I didn't see the wind that blew it down, did you? But I could see everywhere it had blown. It's like now. Do you see the wind? I don't. But I see those trees waving around. So it is with everyone born of God. You need to be born again. You can't do it yourself. 
but God comes to the rescue. If you want to have one image to think about Christianity to take away this weekend, it's this. Christianity is God to the rescue. And He does it again and again and again. And whether it's the first time or the 100,000th time, God is still committed to coming to the rescue. He calls us to remember. He invites us to return. And then He tells us to sing. Here it is again, that connection with worship. It's not just enough to return. He says, sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. What are we to sing about? About what the Lord's done. It's one of the things I love about these hymns is they help us to sing about what God has done and who He is, not just about what we want to do. Oh, there's a place for saying to God, God, I love you and here's how I want to respond. But it's so important that we sing about what the Lord has done. Burst into song, He says. Why? For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and displays His glory in Israel. Here's the fascinating thing. We exchange the glory of God for a lie and rather than Him saying, okay, fine, have it your way, He's committed to displaying His glory in you. Even though you've exchanged His glory for a lie, he says, I'm not going to let that stand. I'm going to display my glory in you. And it's be going to begin with you coming back to me because I've redeemed you. I've swept away your offenses like the morning mist. And it's fascinating. Hosea uses that same morning mist imagery. He tells his people, said, your love for me is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. But the good news is, God says, I'm going to sweep away your offenses like a cloud, like the morning mist. Idolatry is absolutely vital. Do you understand that what you're trying to get from your idols, you already have in God? You already have in the gospel. And the way to deal with your idolatry, the way to go after your idolatry is the way God goes after it. Cast scorn on it. Say, look, this is absurd. Write down in a journal. Ask your friends to help you. Think of how absurd all of this stuff is that we put our trust in. And then, don't stop there. Search out the Scriptures. Ask your friend, ask your campus minister to say, help me to find some Scriptures that I can use to do battle against my unbelief. Are you tempted to think that God is going to forget you and therefore you need to constantly be keeping on His radar by what you do? Then you need to remember, I will not forget you. Maybe you need to write it on your palm so that every day you can look at it. You need to understand ultimately the way God promises most perfectly to us is in Jesus. And so ultimately, it's not enough just to think about God and His attributes in an abstract way. You've got to go the rest of the way and connect the dots to Jesus. Now I'll talk more about this uh, tonight, but I'll just for now say this. It's one thing to think about the love of God it's another thing to gaze upon Christ and Him crucified. The love of God personified. Paul says in, in uh, his letter to Titus that when the love of God appeared, and he's talking about Jesus, when the love of God appeared, the way to understand the patience of God 
is to look at Jesus on the cross. If you wonder, how can God love me when I do so many wretched things? And Kevin, if you knew what was in my heart, what I wanted to do, let alone what I do, you would not be able to stand up there and tell me God loves me. And I will say, really? The wrath of God has been poured out upon Jesus. He drank it to the very dregs. How do I know that? I look at the cross. I don't just sort of hope that God is going to keep liking me. Listen, Christianity is not saying that God just woke up this morning and decided to cut you a break. It's saying that there's something happened in real time and space history that changed your status before Him. It's real and it's objective. And it really happened. And therefore you can be secure because salvation is based on reality, not wishful thinking. The cross is how God does battle with our idols. It shows us how absurd they are. Why would you put your hope in anything other than Jesus when Jesus went to the death of deaths for you? Which of your idols has died for you lately? Which of your idols loves you so much that they would go to a cross? Do battle with your idols by the cross. Preach the cross to your heart to say, Idols, in light of the cross, you are absurd and pointless. And fear, you're absurd and pointless. How can I be afraid when Jesus didn't run away from me screaming? Not only that, he'd rather die than live without me. How can I be afraid? Let's pray together.